Blog Talk Radio. Good evening out there in Radio Land. You have reached Beyond the Gate Radio. I am your co-host. I am Sherelle Baker. And our uh, host tonight is David Baker. David, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine, Sherelle. Thank you, everybody out there in Radio Land. This is going to be a fantastic evening tonight. But first, let me tell you about next week. On Sunday, we are going to have Jackie Chan. And if anybody has parents, if any parents out there have children that may have experiences seeing ghosts or invisible, you know, friends or whatever, uh, please tune in because Jackie has uh, quite an extensive blog on many aspects of the paranormal, including how to deal with or handle or teach, work with children that uh, see spirits, for example. And then we're going to touch on other subjects too, dark entities and who knows where it'll go, but it'll be very interesting. But tonight's guest, Jeff Dyer, he's based, uh, I'm going to read briefly a little bit about what it says on this website and we'll bring him in. He's uh, based in California's premier wine country north of the San Francisco Bay Area. Jeff says that he performs historical research as it pertains to ghostly and paranormal phenomenon and investigate haunted sites using highly developed psychic methods that include remote viewing, psychometry, and clairvoyance. He uh, uses some of the material generated by these investigations to write his books. A list of his published books is uh, given on his book page of his website, which is jeffdyer.com. We have it posted on his bio on the radio show page at the bottom of the hot link. Sherelle is posting it in the chat room as well. And he goes on to say with a wealth of material about the paranormal, I often appear on radio and television and at uh, book events, special gatherings to talk about technical and psychic methods of ghost hunting, methods for researching the history of haunted places, and methods of increasing one's sensitivity to ghosts and other paranormal phenomena. Check out the About Us page for a description of his ghost hunting methods. You know, I find that very interesting because not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, we had Donna Stewart of Sci-Fi Radio and PSI Investigations in Oregon. And their method for doing uh, paranormal investigations are, is using or the use of instrumentation, cameras, recorders, um, the ghost box, electromagnetic field meters and different things. Some people just do it that way. Some people, like Hans Holzer believe, should use a medium, and they do, or a sensitive of some type, which can glean extra information during an investigation. And some people investigate without any of that, perhaps just solely psychically remote viewing. There's many different ways one can do it. But I find that to be interesting about Jeff. When I first looked into it, I was thinking, well, here's this person, highly educated, has a whole lot of books, like Ghost Hunter's Guide to Monterey and California's Central Coast, 
Ghost Hunter's Guide to California's Wine Country, Ghost Hunter's Guide to California's Gold Rush Country, and on and on and on. Check him out on Amazon.com or his website or my uh, Beyond the Gate radio show page on my website as well. That Jeff doesn't walk in with a team with cameras and recorders and all these fancy schmancy instruments. He tunes into them pretty much like I do. And I find that very interesting. But we're going to get into that and other subjects. And later on, we will let people ask questions from chat. And please feel free to call in, too. Now, we are not doing any readings on the show because that's not Jeff's modality. That's not what he does. It's like just because a person's a doctor doesn't mean that they're a brain surgeon besides being a family doctor or a pediatrician or something, if you get my drift. But he does use his gift to uh, do these investigations and uh, lots of other things. So we're going to be questioning him about that tonight. So if you do call in and wish to speak to him, go ahead and you can ask him about his website, his books, what he does. But he's not he doesn't do readings. Sorry, folks. And without further ado, we are going to bring on Jeff Dyer, Ph.D. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, welcome. Thank you very much, David. It's very nice to hear from you. It's wonderful to have you on the show. And something else which is interesting as well, and that's just recently joined another um, group. It's uh, PZTV, Paranormal Zone TV. And yeah, I I've been working with them. Mm-hmm. Yes, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm I'm um, I'm considered sort of an adopted member of the group here. Um, uh, Noreen, uh, who runs this group, is it, quite an amazing person, and she conducts a tremendous amount of investigations that she telecasts on internet TV, and she's very kindly included me in quite a few of these, including from the USS Hornet in Alameda, California, and other places. And um, she lets me come along and participate whenever I can. And I've, I've apologized to her for not being able to be a full-time member because my writing and researching and clients and other things just keep me too busy to commit to going out with a group um, every other weekend or even once a month you know, to be there when you really need to be there if you're a group member. So I'm... Um, they they allow me to come come along when I can, and uh, when I am able to join them, it's quite a thrilling adventure for me. So I love Paranormals on TV. Yes, it's uh, it's quite fascinating. I myself have agreed to go at at this point once a month with them. I, I was only able to go for an hour last week, then I had to leave. I have a full-time job in law enforcement, which I'm retiring from at the end of the of June, so now I have more time. But I have to, just like you, manage my time. Like, for instance, I spent eight hours in the office today and six yesterday, and this is my weekend, my time off, working on uh, researching guests, sitting up, you know, doing lots of things, just catching up. So I'm sure that you must be totally, totally busy as well since you have yeah, we, the situation. Unfortunately, many paranormal investigators and authors of the paranormal have day jobs. And in fact, people ask me, how do you write so many books and research uh, haunted sites and deal with clients and still have a day job? And I, I like to tell them that there's nothing really going on 
after 10 p.m. at night until about 2 a.m. in the morning. So that's a good time to do my writing and researching and uh, and devote time to paranormal. Yes, it, it certainly is. That's a, a quiet time that you can just concentrate and relax and just, you know, let your mind get into the writing and just dive right into it. Mm-hmm. Possibly because of that focus of mind concentration that by the time you're ready to go to bed, you probably sleep like a baby. Am I correct? <laughs> yeah, usually I do. And I don't get enough sleep, but when I sleep, I sleep very, very well. <laughs> but, excuse me. When, late at night is um, sometimes a tough time to write for many people. But for me, even though I'm tired from the day, once I uh, get that first sentence um, on onto the screen, it just flies. And before I know it, I've got several hundred words written and uh, feel like I've done my, my duty for the day. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, somebody in the chat room asked a question. They wanted to know if you, do you consider yourself a medium. Um, people have have called me a medium. Uh, people have called me an empath also because um, that follows a description, my description of what I feel and what I see here and that sort of thing. Uh, but I've just not gone ahead and developed uh, mediumship skills at all, and I would very much like to. I think I have an ability to tap into the spirit world and communicate. I have done that a, a number of times, uh, sporadically more or less, uh, but still no, a number of times, including uh, contacting my great-grandfather who died in 1891. got a message from him once. But it's just not something I've had the time to do just yet. I've been focusing on remote viewing, uh, dealing with my clients, researching questions that have put to me that been put to me by people around the country, and then writing books. And uh, that that about takes up my time right now. Oh, I can imagine it takes a lot of time. So perhaps later on this year, if I start my mediumship classes up again, you might be a willing participant. I would love to do that. I think what it would take for me is actually to get into some sort of organized uh, training program to to really latch onto this and start running with it. Because um, from time to time over the years, I've I've sort of gotten into it a little bit and then got busy with something else, you know, and sort of coming and going with this. And that makes it very tough to follow through. And I don't think you can develop skills as a medium that way. It didn't work for me anyway. So uh, it would take a class or some program, and I'd love to do that with you. That'd be fine. And, you know, it teaches you a lot. It clears up the mysteries. It shows you the secrets, the tips, and to what degree do you have the gift and how can it be opened up more. It's, you know, teach it, we teach etiquette and all the protocols for doing such a thing, and it's really an interesting thing. You walk away with a better understanding, and we clear up the myths that people hear and see on TV about that. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that from talking to a lot of paranormal investigators, you know, a lot of them have the gift, which is wonderful, and they use it to, I wouldn't say cheat, but to kind of as an extra tool sometimes when, with their instruments, even though they don't bring a medium along. But a lot of them have told me that after a certain amount of ghost investigations, they are able to better sense 
they could walk in a place and just say, I know if there's something here or not right away. You know, just sense it. And what I tell people is the more you do that, the more it opens up your psychic channels because you're, you, that's what you're using when you go in there naturally in addition to your tools. You know, you're, you're like, it's like going to the gym. The more you use it, the more it opens up. So that's one thing that I believe that happens with people that may not have been open originally. Don't you agree? Oh, I agree completely with you. It's very well stated. I think a lot of times, uh, so many skills that we have, if we don't use them daily, uh, they'll they'll not uh, not develop as fully as we'd like them to develop. But you also mentioned that many people use instrumentation to go into haunted sites and do investigations, while they sort of diminish the probability that they may have a psychic experience. And I see this on ghost hunters a lot. You know, I still like the show and I admire the people who have created it and put it on, but they refuse to use a medium or a psychic or anybody else uh, in any of their investigations. And yet they go in with a, a three SUVs full of instrumentation and often get very little for that. Then they sit down with the client and one of the first things they say is that they didn't get much audio or video, but they had a lot of personal experiences, and they talk a lot about those. Well, personal experiences are really just psychic impressions of what's going on there, and sometimes these personal experiences they're talking about are really the, the, the viewing of an apparition or, or hearing disembodied voices, and yet they're not willing to to actually label those as, as a psychic detection of paranormal activity. They're just so in, ingrained and in focusing only on the technical aspects of their investigation. So I'm a strong advocate of combining the two approaches, not you know, putting together the psychic and the technical approach to paranormal investigation. Yes, for example, the TV show we had uh, Derek Okora on, as a guest last week, and he was the first medium of Most Haunted, the TV show. Yeah. Yeah, and the way they, they used everything, including the medium, and they even had a researcher and people that did interviews. That's pretty much a good way of doing it. Uh, and the medium never is told anything about the area they're going into as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, used to watch Most Haunted quite a bit. It seems to have fallen off my local television server around here. But I used to watch it. The, the locations they went to were interesting. Sometimes they got a little bit over over dramatic. They included some people yes. in the scene that would scream or actually run from the scene. And I couldn't figure that out because you're traveling sometimes hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles, to go to a haunted place. And then when something happens... You turn and run and scream. I don't. I don't get that. But um, aside from those people, yeah, Derek Acora was in, interesting to watch. Some people really couldn't appreciate what he was doing because it's hard yeah. to translate that from a TV screen uh, to to a viewer to help them understand really. So he was accused, I think, unfortunately, of being a little over dramatic. I think he was just feeling so much of what he was detecting. Yeah. So I admire him quite a bit. Yeah, I, I believe that as well. Uh, he, you know, let's face it. You're going to put on a TV show, you know, Ghost Whisper, Jane Van Prague's baby, right? Ghost yeah. Whisper, there's a lot of truth in there, but it's really over dramatic. 
And no, it's not exactly like that. But if they want to sell the show, they have to do that. If Most Haunted has um, some people in there that do that, they leave them in the show, you know, that screamer gets scared, because they have to put a little Hollywood interest in it, or at least from their perspective, they think they do, to keep people from watching it, to turn up the uh, excitement or scary meter. In some shows, they don't need to do that. Everybody does it different. And, you know, the ghost investigators, maybe some of them, they only want to do it by scientific instrumentation only without a medium, but a medium is, is a extra asset. So I, I respect whoever does their investigations by whatever method, whatever they're trying to achieve or prove, that's fine. But you're right. And I was just talking about this not too long ago. It was about ghost hunters that, yes, they've got a little bit of evidence, but they have so many personal experiences. Well, don't they count? <laughs> not really in their method of investigation, but perhaps somebody else that's more open-minded to do the investigation, it won't make you look... Uh, you know, it won't take away your credibility. If you had a uh, personal experience with some of the kudas, that may or may not have been captured on any of your instrumentation. That should be able to count as well. After all, the people bought you there because they're having personal experiences. That's right. Well, exactly. I agree with that. And that's a good point, too. Um, the clients that they these TV shows uh, go to serve are relating personal experiences. And uh, they're not relating, they're not claiming that they've captured something on video or happen to have an EMF detector in their kitchen that would go off every morning at 8.30. You know, they're, they're giving a description of personal experiences. And I think bringing in a medium or a psychic, a sensitive who can, first of all, give some validation to that would be extremely valuable. If anything, it would help focus the technical investigation because in many cases they set up cameras and sensors all throughout a uh, house, for instance. Uh, I think it's better to just focus on that particular spot where the resident of the house feels there's something quite paranormal and then focus focus your instrumentation at that spot. And I've advocated that for quite a long time. That makes a lot of sense. You don't mind if I backpedal a little bit? I would, wanted to ask you, how did you get started in this, was there, do you have an experience that got you interested and started the wheels turning, or did it just, was it gradual? Well, my, my story is really not too different from that of others you've had on your shows, and I've heard people talk about it. When I, I was about 12 years old, uh, living in Alameda, I, I was looking out the window of our home and saw a person who looked like a sailor walking down the street. And Alameda is a maritime town, so it wasn't unusual. But what was unusual is as I watched this person walk down the street, he simply disappeared right before my eyes. And at that point on, I felt like I could see things that others were unable to see. At the time, there were quite a few old houses in Alameda that were abandoned. And so I would, um, you know, look for one that looked particularly spooky and break into it and it wasn't really a big deal because a lot of them were just you know, left open, those windows open, doors open. You could just walk in and uh, walk around. And I started seeing things, hearing things, hearing voices, that sort of thing. It made me aware that I could, I could see something. I didn't know the term paranormal at the time, but I did know the, the term ghosts. And I started feeling that I could see ghosts. 
uh, I sort of kept the interest up, but had to set it aside a bit throughout my high school and college career. I went to college for quite a long time, ended up with four degrees, but it still took me a while. It wasn't until I was well out of college and well into my career that I could start traveling on weekends to places that I thought were were haunted. In fact, we used to take off and say, we're going ghost hunting this weekend. And this was many, many years before the TV show Ghost Hunters. And we would go to Monterey, San Diego, to Nevada, New Orleans, Charleston, South Carolina, places all over the country for for trips just to look into historic locations that uh, sort of gave me the vibe that they, they were haunted. I started collecting stories and writing down little notes about my experiences and um, uh, thought about putting the book together. But I, I didn't get to it because I was busy writing novels, too. And I was having some frustration with getting my first novel published. So a friend said, well, you need to set the novel aside and write something really ridiculous, and you'll get published. Well, I didn't want to write something ridiculous. He, in fact, suggested I write a dirty novel, you know, one of these sex stories. But I didn't want to do that. So I thought, well, I'll take my ghost stories and put them together and, uh, you know, Xerox it, give it to friends, things like that, and just, you know, I'll have it all together. Well, it turns out that the woman who was my literary agent at the time, who was representing my novels, actually owned a haunted inn up in California's Gold Rush country. And when I mentioned this collection of ghost stories to her, she asked to see it, did her magic with editing, and uh, I cleaned it up a bit and sent it back to her and thought nothing more of it. About 20 days later, she called me up and said, we have an eight-book contract with Pelican, which is a major publisher based in New Orleans. And that was a shock to me because I didn't even know she submitted it. And uh, it was a big shock because for so many people, you submit a proposal or a, a query letter to a publisher, and sometimes six, eight, ten months goes by before you hear anything. So here we had a contract in 20 days. And that's just started everything rolling. In fact, the contract has been doubled. I'm doing 16 books. And I've just finished writing book. Well, I'm, I'm halfway through book number nine now, which is on Portland and the Oregon coast. But um, it's been a long process, an enjoyable one, so that has kept me busy. And that's how I branched out. Uh, once I started with my first book and developed my website, people contacting me, uh, inviting me to come and do investigations with various groups, which I've done. But also clients have uh, contacted me and asked me to give advice, uh, consultation, sometimes visit their haunted location or a location they believe is haunted, and uh, help them sort out what's going on. So I do quite a bit of that as well. And that's how I've sort of fallen into this. That's amazing. And so, you know, to be successful, or if you're successful, you pretty much stay busy. And you know what your mom always used to say, you know, um, idle hands are the devil's workshop, so you might as well be busy, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a lot of information you have. Well, it's been a whirlwind, uh, kind of a, an event here, because once um, once I got my website open, it just you know people start googling your name or they'll Google paranormal investigator or something like that, and next thing you know, you've got people who are inquiring about things. And a lot of the work I do is 
simply answering a few questions for people. And if they are quite a distance from where I'm located, I'll just team them up with somebody who is close to their location. So I'll, I'll basically pass them off to, to another investigator who might be able to make an on-site visit. Uh, because I, I do travel quite a bit, but I just I can't take off at a moment's notice and visit a place in Denver or a place you know in Missouri because a client really wants me to look at their house or something like that. But I do a lot of work locally. Though. I do a lot of visits around the San Francisco Bay Area and the wine country where I live. Well, we're going to have to get together sometime and do something. That sounds good. Besides with Noreen, I'm going to have to team up with you and see what we can get into. That sounds very yeah. interesting. She's planning another event on the Hornet in August, and that might be a, a good event, if not sooner. Uh, she does a great job on the USS Hornet, which is a World War II aircraft carrier berthed in Alameda, California, probably one of the most haunted ships that there is. In fact, uh, I know the Queen Mary's got something like 350 ghosts on it, and other historic ships have quite a few ghosts. But on the Hornet, what we're finding is that a lot of ghosts are taking up residence there that never served on the ship. There are ghosts there who were never in the Navy, and we suspect that this place is, has become a vortex, if you'd like to use that term. And there are a lot of ghosts coming to the ship, the Hornet, um, and, and taking up residence there. And so for that reason, there are hundreds. And uh, each time I'm on the Hornet, I have profound paranormal experiences. Um, and many of the people who come to our events have them as well. Well, that's amazing. I've done Alcatraz a couple of times, and one particular night, and I had some interesting experiences there. I haven't done the Hornet yet, and I haven't read anything about its history, and I don't think I'm going to. I just want to be surprised. But Noreen has me and the ship's historian together for an event on May 14th on a Saturday, so we'll see how that one goes. But I wanted to ask you things. See, we got off and I forgot, so I'll just ask you. Um, is there any type of experiences that you have that were um, – oh, yeah, experiences. Wait, let me put that on hold for a second. I want to ask you this. Do you consider yourself a parapsychologist? Because you're, you're, you know, like a ghost investigator is really dealing into parapsychology. Am I correct? Is that? Yeah. Well, I, I would have to say at best, um, even though I'm a pro professional paranormal investigator, I do a lot of work for, without fee, but I do charge a fee to some clients. Um, I would have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur parapsychologist, and I use that term with deference to my good friend Lloyd Auerbach, and Lloyd is a, a premier parapsychologist. I've not had the training Lloyd has had, so I think it would be presumptuous of me to, to claim that I, I stand in you know, at the same level as Lloyd. Uh, a lot of what I do is parapsychology. Um, but again, I just I can't claim that I'm a parapsychologist. My my training actually, my academic background is in medical sciences, cardiovascular and respiratory physiology, and it's pretty far from from psychology. But I do a lot of reading in parapsychology, and um, as I said, I've incorporated a lot of that into my writing, into my approach to ghost hunting, 
but I, I'd have to only say I'm, a, I'm an amateur at it. Well, that's okay. You put out some awesome books and had some great experiences, which brings me to the next question. Is there any particular experience that you had that was particularly frightening? Do you ever get afraid, or have you ever been afraid or had a spooky experience in any particular area or investigation? Yeah, I have. Um, not nearly as many as people think, because um, a lot of people I speak to ask me that question, and they tend to think I've got, you know, a whole whole box full of of experiences where I've been scared and run from the scene and all of that. That that doesn't happen. Um, uh, early on in my investigative career, I was visiting a mansion called the Redmond House in Watsonville, California, which is only about 20 miles from Monterey. And this huge mansion, it's got to be about 8,000 square feet, sits out in the middle of an artichoke field. It was built sometime around 18, 1920, um, but it's been weathered badly by the ocean, which is nearby. So it's pretty run down. In fact, at this point, it's unoccupied. Uh, I stopped there once, and um, it was abandoned at that point. And I was up on the front steps, peeking in the front, the glass at the front door, and I heard what sounded like an argument between two men, a loud, violent argument inside. And I was curious, but also at the same time felt like um, uh, I probably shouldn't make my presence known or they might get really angry with me. But before I could think too much about it, this argument came right through the door. I mean, it was it was... The voices came through the door. I saw no apparitions, but they came right out through the door, and the volume increased, and that really scared me. And that's one of the few times I turned and ran down the steps because they just—it's like this this fight came right through the door, over the porch, and as it moved across the porch, I moved faster and I moved down the steps and ran. It it really scared me. This was quite a few years ago. I have a lot of moments where, you know, something will happen and you get that startle kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, these days, I'm not running into anything that I could say really scares me. Uh, I've run into a few spirits some years ago that made threatening remarks, um, and that, that put me on edge a bit. But uh, nothing that I could really say scares me and makes me want to run from the place. Yes, so that's very interesting. Do you know that sometimes when people are in a room where there's a ghost there, for example, that they may be forming and you may see like lights or a mist or what I call streaming ectoplasmic energy, which looks like a fog. It may mm-hmm. partially form or not. Or use you know the person's energy. It, the place becomes cold, or the spot does. So in order for them to be able to get enough energy to manifest a voice, to make a bang, to move something, to touch you, or to let themselves be seen. What do you think about that? Well, I, I've encountered all of that sort of thing, and uh, it none of it. None of it scares me. Like I said, a lot of it, sometimes there's a startle kind of a thing. But, yeah, um, I've seen lots of mists. I've seen apparitions, actually, some of them quite lifelike. Uh, but 
those are fairly rare, as you, I'm sure you know. But yeah, I often run into these these mists, and sometimes these mists actually have a physical basis to them. Um, whenever you have a temperature flux, whenever you have energy flow from from one uh, cell of air to another, for instance, uh, you can get um, a change in humidity, which actually creates some vaporization of water, and that's actually what we're seeing. That's, that's a good thing to look for because that's pretty profoundly paranormal. Wow. Yes, it is, and it doesn't take instruments to discern a presence. You know, humans can feel it too because of our aura, our aura. You know, the uh, electromagnetic field that's around us. Yeah. That um, when another energy touches it, I believe it sends a ripple through that to your nerve center and you feel it instantaneously. That's how we can sense it. And if it's cold energy, it kind of gives people goosebumps all the way up and down. And I believe that if it's a, a negative energy, which, like you said, is really encountered, it can make you feel scared. Even though you're not, it puts that feeling in you that simulates fear. And that's how you can tell it's a nasty spirit. But there's times when there may be a, an emotional person that has died that's emotional and they're there in spirit and you might, you know, feel their emotions. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things that could happen, all kinds of ways to experience the paranormal without using any instruments. Oh, I, I believe so. And the, the skeptics or the critics will tell us that the problem with that is then you're relying on the, the bias of the reporter, the person who's stating that they felt something. Uh, you're also dealing with uh, self-deception and a number of other um, intangibles. And because you don't have something you can show friends and colleagues or clients, um, your your experience, which is essentially evidence, is, is not valued very highly. And I think that's a real travesty. That's a really a problem in our field right now. I, I think um, people who are are very good and at their psychic investigations who take care to be unbiased and to be to avoid self delusion that sort of thing their experiences ought to be more highly valued and uh, it's unfortunate that it's not because I've told people that that most the most common types of paranormal experiences are really those that don't affect instrumentation or they may affect instrumentation in ways that are rather vague. You know, you might get something um, on uh, an audio recorder and uh, it, it may be one word that is unintelligible and yet a psychic in the place might be hearing much, much more than that and at the same time feeling yes. the presence of an individual and feeling yes. the temperature change which is the manifestation of that individual and uh, seeing these vapors and that sort of thing, which may not be picked up on video. So the psychic investigator, I think, can can have can gather a lot more evidence than uh, a three SUVs full of instrumentation. That, that's true. I believe that. No, science can't prove everything. Everything can't be proved by science. Science doesn't know everything. Neither will it. Mediums are genuine. They've been tested in different universities. It's documented. Google it. People can find out um, that they're valid. 
and if you don't believe that, you know, if a person is experiencing something and not given to bipolarism, psychoses, hallucinations, or one type of any type of drugs or anything like that, but they're norm, normal, clean and healthy, logical, intelligent person, and then they have some experiences, and somebody else said it must be imagination. You think about well, I'm perfect. I have a perfect uh, bill of health. You know, mental, mentally, I'm clear. So if something occurred, and I'm not nuts, then it must have occurred. I noticed it. It's just that this is a field that uh, we're beginning to understand. Not everybody knows. And let me ask you this, Jeff, can you, do you love your wife, right? And there are certain times when you're really just feeling it. You can really feel the love from her, can you not? Certainly. You know love exists, do you not? Of course. Can you see it? No, definitely not. I rest my case. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually a good. You see the manifestation of it. Oh, sorry, sorry, Jeff. So this is Sherelle. You see the manifestation of it by how she treats you, cares for you, and stuff. That's just the manifestation of it. Oh yeah, and you know that's a good place to begin the the uh, argument, if you will, that uh, that builds up the case for psychic investigations. There's so many important emotions and experiences in our lives that are intangible in terms of representing them on any type of instrumentation. You're just not going to get that. And uh, I don't think it'd be very difficult to to start including psychic investigators in a very controlled way into investigations. In fact, I've advocated that groups that are interested in doing this might bring aboard two psychics and have them separately go into the haunted venue and record their impressions, write down a few notes, some key impressions. And they do this separately. And then after the second person is done, they would they would compare notes to see if they're sensing the same thing. For instance, do they both sense a, a male presence? Was it a young person, old person, angry person, a benevolent person, that kind of thing? Where is this presence? What part of the room is it in? And once you reconcile the two reports, there'll be some commonalities that may provide a focus for instrumentation. And then you'll go in and you'll you'll do your instrumentation. You'll try to get your audio um, EVP, that sort of thing, and see if you can verify that there is, for instance, a young male presence there that may be happy or angry or whatever the psychics told you to look for. It's not hard to incorporate that. I think the difficulty perhaps might be just getting over certain biases that that tend to show up in people who are strongly dedicated to technical ghost hunting. Yes, and I myself, I encounter all types and I always tell them that, you know, go for it. You know, I respect your approach and, you know, what are you trying What are you trying to find out? You know, what methods do you use and what is your, what's your type of approach? It may be different than another paranormal group's type of approach. So, you know, you might look at it differently, maybe get more evidence, maybe get less, maybe um, throw out a lot of stuff. That's okay. Do your approach and get what you can, and if not, perhaps 
your approach may need to be changed or it may evolve over time. Who really knows? But yeah. I thank goodness for my abilities because I kind of feel like I'm cheating when I go there because I pretty much got, you know, don't need anything. I just go in there and see and communicate with spirits. Like, for example, on Alcatraz, first time there at nighttime, I was in the dining hall. I didn't know there was any females, you know, little girls on the uh, island I expected to encounter some some uh, inmate with a shank in his hand, or, you know, some ruffian or something like that. But what I encountered was a little girl appeared before me. And this is what's interesting. My friends were taking video and we were picture we got we got a vortex in the um I think it's the south east corner of it. Anyway, normally when we film and we come to an area that's not pure white but and you can't focus and it's all blurry, sometimes that could be a vortex, not always, but a, a few times I've had that happen. They were filming it, and I watched it later, and I watched it in slow motion when it came to that part, that uh, a bright light came out of the uh, that area and shot straight for me and stopped right by me at the same time I, uh, I noticed it. And then I looked, and I could see a little girl standing next to me telling me that, you know, she was looking for a parent. She's afraid. There's a lot of scary people there and wanted to hold my hand. And she grasped my little fingers, and they turned ice cold. And I walked and talked with her for a few minutes. And then when I left that area, you know, she took off. And so later on, I did some research because, you know, I, hey, I'm, I lived in San Francisco most of my life. I took it for granted, so I never read anything on Alcatraz. I found out later that one of the guards that lived in the apartments there, their little girl was playing and fell the top story window to her death, and most likely that could be the person that I encountered there. Yeah, it sounds like it to me. There, there are quite a few civilians out there, and when people go to Alcatraz, they're focusing on the, the inmates, but there were quite a few guard families, families of the guards, rather, that lived out there, and I think they are responsible for a lot of paranormal activity on Alcatraz. Yes. Your experience sounds very fascinating to me, and that's the kind of thing that that, that I have also. And uh, but it's hard to get technical ghost hunters sometimes to accept the veracity of these things. But see, that proves a point. You are a medium. You just don't have the training for it yet. You're a yeah. natural medium. Now I wanted to ask you about Bodie. I've always been intrigued and wanted to visit there. Have you ever been to the ghost town of yeah. Bodie? Yes, I have. It's quite a long drive. Um, and the last 17, 18 miles is on a, a road that is pretty much gravel and slurry top. And so you've got to have good tires on your car and not worry about rocks dinging the paint. It's a bit of a trip. Oh, I can imagine. I, th- I thought going from Reno to Virginia City or on that winding road was going to drive me crazy, but you know, at least it was yeah. rocks and gravel, and I didn't need a four-wheel drive to get there. Yeah, I went to Virginia City just a few weeks ago for a conference, and it was a little scary. That Geiger Pass Road is is is, is tough in bad weather. But uh, Bodie is a fascinating place. It's in a state of arrested development or arrested decay, I should say. Uh, there's been no effort to preserve other than just, you know, if there's been something knocked down by a storm, the rangers will put it back up. 
but there's uh, the, the houses and other buildings are just there as people left them. And sometimes there are personal belongings still inside. You can look inside and see kitchen utensils, that sort of thing, boots, hats even. And uh, there's there's quite a few spirits there. In fact, I'm surprised that the team from Ghost Adventures and some of these other outfits hasn't, hasn't uh, gone there to do a show. Yes, I'm amazed that, that you know, the place, there's so many buildings there that are really haunted. Even before I developed my abilities there, I've been going there since the early 80s. And, you know, I, I just accepted that, yeah, I can see ghosts and sense them. And whenever I went to places like that, I'd always look around because I could feel that we have company, but I didn't want to really focus in on it since I was so used to it and I really wasn't interested that much in it, you know, till later years when I ended up working in, in a haunted jail. But and then I, I went into it. But yes, without a doubt, that place there has lots of uh, spirits. And I was wondering which one of the uh, western towns, for example, you know, like a ghost town that have you been to that's been really uh, intriguing to you. Could it be one in the wine country or one in another state? Well, quite a few, but the one that stands out in Nevada is a town called Austin, Nevada, which is right in the middle of the state on Highway 50. And Austin was a silver mining boom town. It started to boom about 1870 following uh, the boom in Virginia City. In fact, when Austin started to pick up in terms of silver production, a lot of locals started to think that Virginia City would soon be abandoned and everyone would move to Austin, which is about 120 miles east into the high desert country. The town fascinates me because my great-grandfather arrived there in 1876, and soon thereafter his wife gave birth to my grandfather. And um, a few years later, 1881, my great-grandmother died in Austin giving birth to her fifth child. So I go out there every few years and clean up her grave. And I've actually found through family records, I found the house in which she lived and died. Uh, it's actually an adobe structure, and it's currently a, uh, in the backyard of a, of a newer house. There's, there's only about a few hundred people who live there. It's considered a ghost town, but... There's, there's a few businesses there. And um, so I found the house. It's overgrown with weeds, and it was really freaky to me to walk inside of this and realize that my great-grandparents lived there. My, great, my grandfather was born in that house, and my great-grandmother died there. And to think that they raised a family there for about five years is amazing to me because, of course, there's no running water. It's very hot in the summer and freezing cold and snowy in the wintertime. And I just don't know how they they got by the way they did. But when I go there, of course, I always feel this strong connection to them. And so it's really a, a incredibly um, delightfully freaky experience for me to go out to Austin, Nevada. But there's a lot of that closer to home, too, up in the wine country, there's a lot going on up there that um, really predates uh, the wine industry as we know it. When you look at Napa County and Sonoma County and part of Mendocino County, um, those territories, a lot of it was under control of 
first, first the Spanish, and then the Russians moved in. Russia controlled Northern California from about 1812 to about 1842 or so. Many people aren't aware of that, but no, but um, yeah, towns like Santa Rosa and uh, up there that was Russian territory. So and. Oh, once, my German once, friend will be very sad about hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And once the Spanish started pushing a little bit north of the bay, they were ruthless with the Indians. And they were really ruthless. And and there are there were whole villages that were wiped out. Uh, once the Yankees took over in 1846 and into the 1850s, um, we weren't any better. And whole villages were wiped out. There's a massacre that's well known to occur up near Clear Lake. There's an island up there uh, where there was an Indian village, and um, whites went in there and just killed everybody just to get rid of these Indians. And that sort of thing happened in Sonoma as well, and probably up in the northern part of Napa Valley. So there's a lot of, still a lot of spirit remnants left over from those days. And uh, during that the mission period when the Spanish were in control, the local Indians were pretty much enslaved to the missions. There was a lot of punishment, a lot of deaths, and a lot of abuse, and there's still a lot of that imprint around all of these wine country towns. It's funny you should mention that because my great-great-great-grandmother was a Chumash Indian, and uh, either you did something like she did. She was matron for a Spanish don or wealthy family back when it, the early days of California. And you either did that or you were a slave or you were killed. So that's the story I heard from my family. And she married a Spanish sea captain, I guess, that they met at one of these parties. And eventually they were given an, a, a Spanish land grant down there in Monterey. They had a ranch. And as you know, as history goes, that when the United States took over California's territory and a lot of the um, white settlers started moving in to California from the east, they went to court and they were able to get these uh, grants away from these people and, and take them over themselves and drive them off the properties and stuff. Like, oh, yeah. You know, so I know I know that old story. But what can you say? You know, that's yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah, it was pretty ruthless in those days. The only time you're able to keep your land grant is if the land was not valued by the Yankees who were coming into the states. You know, <laughs> if, if, you know, if you were out in the Central Valley in a dust bowl, basically with very little water around, and your cattle were starving, they didn't care about your land. But if you had, you know, six thousand acres near Monterey, yes, it was it was highly uh, desired. So. You lost your land. Even General Haleo lost many of his holdings. Now, he was a politically powerful person after California became uh, a state and joined the Union. But despite his political power and his influence and his popularity, he still lost uh, well over 100,000 acres of land. Yeah. People came here. Oh, I believe that. And I'll just mention it briefly because we have a question in the chat room from the Lone Ghost Man. But the wife and I went up to his daughter's Victorian mansion, which was called the General's Daughter at the time as a restaurant. And I didn't know anything about it, and I had an experience with uh, with her there. In fact, we have, uh, you know, some people believe or don't believe in orbs, but in 
two shots, we got some clear orbs in it. But what happened was we were sitting there eating. I didn't know it was haunted. I didn't know anything about it. We were sitting there eating for celebrating for something. It was a nice restaurant. Suddenly, I told the wife, you know, my ghost detector came on and said, oh, a ghost came in the room. And I noticed it came from, uh, the upstairs was closed, but it came from the, down the staircase toward us. I could see it, this female coming toward us really quick. Next thing you know, the bread on her plate flipped over, and then she felt brushed, you know. So mm-hmm. so I'm sure that because of what happened there and General Vallejo's um, quarters and everything, the um, little fort that's there must be haunted as well. But that's what yeah, you just have to bring that to mind. That's why I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. His house is haunted, and the place you mentioned the the general's daughter. That was a house that he built for his daughter Josephine as a wedding gift, and it's haunted with her ghost. It's believed to be there. So, you know, Sonoma is loaded with ghosts. So if people want to take a short trip and go somewhere for a weekend and have an opportunity to visit several locations that are haunted, Sonoma is the place to go. All right. I just want to uh, ask this question for the lone ghost man in the chat room. He wants to know, how can apparitions move objects without limbs? Is it psychokinesis? Or do they move them with their mind or what? That's one of the two questions he has. Yeah, you know, if, if ghosts are moving objects, they are probably doing it through psychokinesis because they don't have any physical... Um, manifestation okay, there's no physicality to them and in fact that they may not even be composed of anything resembling atoms they might be composed of neutrinos or something like that or a psychic energy which we don't know uh, what that is really so they move things probably with psychokinesis that makes a lot of sense to me and he had one more question from the lone ghost men want to know what is the future for parapsychological research? Is it quantum physics? Uh, that's what he's wanting to know. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, what's the future for? <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, in terms of job opportunities or writing opportunities, that sort of thing, it's it's hard to say. Um, there are a lot of universities around the country that offer degrees in parapsychology. I don't know what kinds of jobs people are getting when they get out. And if you if you think you're going to get an education in parapsychology, then write some books and make a living off of that, then you probably need to have your head examined because most people who write books in this field don't make much at all. Uh, so you're not going to live off of that, although it could be a very fascinating endeavor. Um, the avenue of research, you have quantum physics, that might be a way to go. Um, uh, I think it's more likely that we're going to have to look more closely into the nature of human consciousness and find out more about it and why it endures after bodily death. I think that's one way to go. And once we can verify that that as an entity separate from a body and its its persistence after death, then I think you've got what you need to say ghosts exist. That That makes a good point right there. And somebody asked a question in the chat room. It sounds funny, but I've actually experienced it before. They want to know if a ghost can pass gas. (laughs) 
Well, um, a ghost could probably make you think you've detected um, either the sound or the odor of, of flatulence. I was going to say the smell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because you know they they may communicate with us through through a type of telepathy. They can make you think you hear them. They can make you think you feel them. Maybe even make you think you see them. It's all telepathic. You're not really seeing, hearing, or sensing anything. You just have that neurological process that makes you believe you've seen and heard a ghost. So if that's the case, I suppose that's possible. I've never encountered that, although I've encountered a lot of odors that were inexplicable and really quite quite bad. Um, sometimes it's the odor of, um, of rotting meat, that sort of thing. Uh, very often it's pleasant, like flowers, perfume, that kind of thing too, but uh, haven't run into flatulence. It's funny. Somebody asked me on on the show. I think I was a guest on because uh, <laughs> I read my book, and they wanted to know about that. Well, I did. Uh, I was trying out tape recorders to see if I can get EVP. Just experimenting with it, and on my way to an area so many yards away, well, I had eaten some chili previously so I did my thing on the way to that area when I went to that area I turned on the recorder and you know asked the questions if anybody's here do they have anything to say whatever and I, and I took off it came back about half an hour later and I played it back not long after I asked the question you know how you know how children if somebody passes gas a child will hear it they, they will mimic the sound with their mouth you know making that sound oh yeah uh-huh. well i got some evp on that recorder that the person was mimicking what i had just did before i turned on the recorder and went to that hmm. room i found that quite interesting yeah you got to go for the sense of humor yes and we do carry our personalities with us when they cross over i do believe that yeah, oh, definitely, yes. I was writing about that just this morning on my website. But um, more in terms of of uh, bigotry and anger and revenge and that kind of thing. But, yes, we do take uh, all aspects of our personality with us. Oh, yeah, I've met all kinds of... Uh, no, I mostly deal with spirits that when somebody dies, they're a ghost. You go to the light and then you you, you know transition, go through the tunnel to light to what people call heaven, and now you're in the spirit world as a spirit. You know, it goes to the spirit too, but we use the terminology to differentiate between one that's went to heaven and one that's grounded here by whatever reason, their choice, or whatever. As a ghost, they're still in the astral, pretty much like one foot in their dimension and one foot in ours, more or less. Mm-hmm. And on both, you know, both sides though, and during reading readings and in chatting with ghosts, I find that they all, you know, whatever they were before they died, they still are, including the types that you just spoke about. I've met all types of uh, spirit personalities. And uh, you're right. Yeah, I think as long as the, the spirit remains place, uh, earthbound, at least, they're going to retain all of that. I think some of it may be dissolved or dissipated once they make whatever transition you want to you want to talk about crossing over is a common term. Uh, once the spirit moves on to a, a higher a realization that there's a higher higher level of existence, 
they may realize that uh, their criminal intent in life is not something that they want to continue at that point, or they can continue. They have to realize there's a there's a better way for a person to be than to be a criminal, for instance, or to be somebody who, who cheats a lot and that sort of thing. So I think that that change occurs once they evolve into that higher level of existence. But once if they're still earthbound, you'll run into people who are just as nasty as the live one that you you might encounter. You're right. You made a great point. I'm glad you explained it that way because the ghosts that I have encountered have been, had all types of personalities. Mm-hmm. Everything that you spoke of. But if they had that personality, once I'm talking to them, that in the spirit world where they have crossed over, I no longer get that type of personality from them. I've got nothing but positive. Everything, Everybody encountered in the spirit world has been totally positive, and they've been very apologetic for what they did while they were here, begging for forgiveness sometimes, or they have forgiven those that have done something to them. Whatever the case may be, their energy is totally different and lighter for the crossover spirit than it is for the ghost that has not resolved whatever issues they have. And one of the reasons is because they're still here. And I don't believe that every time I meet a ghost, somebody's asked me that, because I have crossed them over, that you should cross them over. Sometimes a ghost may not want to leave. They might be here for a certain reason or for spiritual growth. Who knows? But if one does ask for help, I definitely will help it. Don't you agree on that? I agree completely. I've talked to too many people who feel that uh, their prime objective as ghost hunters should be to cross spirits over, and I think it's a little presumptuous. First of all, you have to have a clear communication from the spirit as to what their desires are, and they may be trying to accomplish something that's really important to them while they're here, and if you're tugging at them to cross them over, it could create quite a bit of conflict, and I think it's presumptuous of us to uh, to try to do that unless there's a clear request from the spirit to assist. That That's it right there. See, I like it when we put our information together we, and we agree on pretty much everything, oh, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. It's great. It's nice to know that there are others out there who are coming at things maybe from different directions but coming up with the same conclusions and uh, in philosophy that you. And I think one of the things that our paranormal community needs to start doing is communicating amongst each other a bit more and try to to come to some agreement about things. Uh, we're never going to agree completely about pro- perhaps most things that uh, comp- comprise our field, but we've got to start agreeing to things about, for instance, what is a ghost and what is an imprint, that sort of thing. Just starting with those basic definitions and then moving on from there to standard um, investigative methods and recognizing some of the the shortfalls or um, problems with using instrumentation. And the same with psychics, too, recognizing some of the shortfalls and recognizing some of the benefits. So we somehow have to put all that together. I'm trying to do that now. I'm writing a book called The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation and hoping to have it out by the end of the year. But... Um, I may not shoot for that because it's very important that this book be be the book that I want it to be. Thorough. And I, and yeah. I don't want to rush through it. 
um, trying to get it out by the end of the year and not make it as as perfect as I could make it. And I'm trying to make the point that that we should try to come to some consensus uh, in terms of some of these definitions, some of the the investigative methodologies, some of the ways of analyzing evidence, and some criteria for what is paranormal and what is not paranormal. Um, just trying to do that. So, um, uh, as I said, I hope to have it out at the end of the year. More likely, it'll be be February of 2012. That's why it's going to be an awesome book, because I'm working on a couple myself right now, and you know, I kind of wanted them, one of them to be released, you know, by this June. No way. It's got to be just right. I can't let the people down. You have to have the right information. So I totally understand where you're coming from, and that's why your your books are great. I mean, because you do the homework, you get it right, or you do the best you can, you know, to get the information out there to the people, and, and that's what makes a really good book. So, you know, take your time and do it right. Yeah. I agree, you know. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, somebody told me years ago when I was a graduate student, when you get an article published in a medical journal, something like that, it's always there. And my professor yeah. was telling me that... Um, he he knew of colleagues who had gotten something published quickly and they were happy about it, but years later it was somewhat of an embarrassment. And you know, I, I wouldn't want to put a book out there that that isn't something that that will always be a source of pride. That's right. You don't want to muddle through something and just get it out there. If you get it out there, yeah. you want to get the uh, perfect polished diamond out there. Mm-hmm. so that years later, it's still a great read. Yeah. Well, this book, The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation, I'm hoping is going to be one of those pivotal books that will start to bring the paranormal community a little closer together. And so because of that, uh, it's critically important to me to get everything just right. So I'm taking my time a bit on that. At the same time, I'm writing my Ghost Hunter's Guide to Portland book, and uh, I don't have a deadline from my publisher on that, but they would like to have the manuscript by the end of September, and I think that's quite doable. Um, that's on the right path? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to tell some of my friends up there in Oregon, Donna Stewart and some of the other mm-hmm. people that I know up there, about that. They may be interested in, in talking to you. Oh, yeah. Having you on a show or something, you know. I'm just going to tell them anyway, uh, because that's very interesting. I have some family that lives up in Oregon anyway, and I've we visit up there. Well, we need to visit my family, the wife and I. We've been promising them. And so that'd be uh, nice to look at your material to see mm-hmm. if there's places I could visit, you know, from your books. Yeah, it's Portland's great. Um, I, I've got another trip up there soon, uh, just waiting for the weather to clear a little bit. The last one was pretty wet. Um, there's, there's so much up there. There's a lot going on. It has a tremendous history. It's a lot like like Seattle in terms of its history. Um, mm. But it, it's had its share of disasters and criminal activity and and uh, that kind of thing. So there's a tremendous history. And it has an underground city there, if you will, like the... I was Shanghai just going to ask you. Yeah, oh, I was yeah. just going to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're pretty spooky. In fact, the Shanghai tunnels in Portland, I think, are far spookier than the uh, the underground city in Seattle. Uh, in Seattle, that's that's pretty interesting stuff. I don't want to discount that or discourage anybody from taking a look at it. 
But I think the Shanghai tunnels, uh, to me, are just far spookier. And I can imagine why, the, the name and the purpose of it. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, people were drugged and beaten. In so many cases, uh, they're given too much drugs or beaten too much, and they died down there. And there was criminal activity going on, prostitution, uh, kidnappings, a variety of kidnappings, uh, opium dens, all sorts of things. Uh, probably a lot of, of theft and crime uh, committed, criminal on criminal kind of crime. You know, bad guy stealing from the other bad guy kind of a thing. So there's a tremendous amount of imprint in the Shanghai tunnels alone. Uh, and that there are definitely some ghosts down there. I bet there is. Do you know a person named Lloyd uh, Auerbach? Yes, I do. Well, the lone ghost man has uh, stated in the chat room, he just wanted to mention that he's doing a parapsychology course with him. So there I said it. (laughs) Yeah, Lloyd is, um, uh, he's somebody I admire tremendously. And in fact, his books were pivotal to me in my early development as a student of parapsychology. Um, I think he's he's an exceptional thinker, a really good writer. And he has done, I think, a tremendous job in putting the whole paranormal field in proper perspective. In one of his early books, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's I've got it, it's a paperback book. It came out, I think, in, in the late 80s or early 90s, and it's still the best thing out there in terms of describing uh, paranormal entities and what they truly are from a parapsychologist's perspective. You can still find the book on Amazon.com. So if you just put Auerbach, comma, Lloyd in there, you'll find it. But Lloyd is, um, he's, he's the person I, I look to when I need academic guidance. That's very good. Now, earlier you were mentioning something about the difference between... <laughs> Um, a ghost, let's just say somebody goes to a house and uh, what's the name of that plantation in Louisiana? Um, I know that name. Anyway, somebody goes in and runs up the stairs. No, somebody uh, bangs on the door, then there's gunshot, then the person that lives in the house runs up the stairs and on the 17th stair they fall dead and then they disappear. They disappear and that happens on the same same date each year at the same time, and they try to get the ghost attention, but nothing. On the other hand, in another plantation, there's a a ghost there or haunting there that seems to notice people that are there and, like, maybe pulls their covers off or knocks stuff off the dresser or tidies it up. So do you see a difference in those two types of hauntings right there? Yeah, we're talking about the famous Myrtles in St. Francisville, South uh, Louisiana. That's right. Yeah, one of one of the owners, Robert Woodruff, I believe it was. He he was shot on the porch and he raced through the door and up the stairs and died in his wife's arms on the 17th step. Well, that's an imprint, and uh, you know one of the ways of distinguishing what are called residuals or imprints from ghostly activity is to fall back to what Auerbach has told me years and years ago. He said that. Uh, in order to, to know that you have a ghost, it has to be an intelligent interaction with the witness or an environment. And that intelligent interaction is often movement of objects, direct eye contact, 
gestures the ghost may make so that there's clearly clearly displays an awareness of your presence, that sort of thing. And then you know you have a ghost. But if you've got something where the, the apparition seems to not be aware that you're there and performs the same movements, the same activities time and time again, that's an imprint. And there's no physical interaction with the witness or with the environment. There's no movement or anything like that. That's an imprint. And that's probably the most common paranormal experience. And I've estimated that more than 80% of encounters that people would describe as ghostly are probably the experience of some sort of imprint or residual. And the interesting thing is that these imprints or residuals are actually created while we are alive. They are usually created by intense, repetitive emotional experiences or in the instance that you've described here, the single incidence of being shot knowing that that you're going to die but the only thing on your mind is to race into the house so that you can die in the arms of your wife. That's a very intense emotional experience and although it was singular, it's enough to create this imprint that has endured now for 160 years or so, and it's still there. Usually durable imprints are those created by repetitive emotional experiences, having something going on day after day, week after week, to the point where a living being generates this type of psychic energy that leaves the the imprint on the environment, and then it may be 100 years later. When you, um, you know, when you go back and try to look for it, I don't know how to explain how that works with energy, other than say if you have a block of wax and you throw a water balloon at it, it's going to get wet, drip off, evaporate, dry. But then if you, uh, you know, get a, I don't know, let's say you get shoot it with a shotgun, it's going to leave a bunch of scars with the pellets in it, and so mm-hmm. that's more powerful. So somehow the power of what happens, it it evolves into or builds up into a very, very powerful energy that just moves out and explodes and either tears um, a ripple into energy or time or both and stays there until it eventually dissipates because that would be more noticeable than somebody, you know, just sitting there giggling or something. That would just, you know, fizzle out. But there's something that's very dramatic, very powerful. There has to be, I guess we can't explain exactly how that occurs, but we do know that it it does occur. Like you said, for many dramatic uh, things that could have happened in the past, those things may be noticeable and hang around for a while. Oh, yeah, they're definitely there, and some people who are very sensitive can walk into a place and pick up right away on the imprint of an emotion or an experience or an event that happened. And sensitives, that's what sensitives do. They walk into a place and right away, you know, that something bad happened there or maybe something really good happened there, you'll pick up on that right away. I agree. When when I went to Alcatraz, for example, I noticed several layers of different things and I had to separate them and focus on different ones first I noticed something from a long time ago with 
some occasional Indians on it, but not very much. Just barely discern that, barely. But then I noticed in Civil War, not Civil War, but, um, you know, American military presence there from the past. Mm-hmm. And I pushed that away. Then I noticed a prison and a noise and all kinds of stuff going there. I know that that there is um, there's, they weren't allowed to talk. They were very you know restricted on that. But there were some times when the escape attempt happened and some other stuff happened. I was picking up on a lot of that, and I you know had to push all that aside to focus to see if there was anything there. And I did know something, some things that were there away from me and other parts. Little, little bit here, a little bit there, and, and downstairs and stuff. So there is definitely a difference in how it feels. You know, if something is an imprint or if something is active, that's that's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. And places like Alcatraz, um, there are imprints not only from the the years that it was a prison, but also before that. In fact, when the Spanish first entered San Francisco Bay back in the 1700s, they were told by the Indians not to go to Alcatraz because it was a place of evil spirits. So there was some type of imprint or, or spiritual activity there even at that time. And it's thought that that uh, Alcatraz remains the hotbed of paranormal activity largely because there's something there that, that predates the, uh, the construction of the prison. It might be ge- geologic. There might be minerals there that hold on to psychic energy or imprints and amplify them to the point where a place may just feel really foreboding, really awful. And uh, that may be what people were looking for when they wanted to build a prison. You don't want to have a place that's a country club. You want to have a place that feels like it's the end of the universe. And that's definitely what Alcatraz felt to a lot of these people. So there may be something there that's geologic. It might be that it's surrounded by seawater also. Seawater is very polarized uh, in terms of electrochemistry, and it may be helping to hold on to the imprints that are out there. And, and I also believe that there's some type of, th- th- with this combination, it's either a vortex or something similar to that in an energy field that's just different mm-hmm. that could really uh, hold like a radio transmitter can carry voice over its carrier waves, well, maybe there's energy there that can carry, pick up, or whatever, keep things that, physical things that have happened there and perhaps non-physical things. Mm-hmm. Like you said, through the combination. Oh, yeah, definitely. Alcatraz is still uh, the, the mecca of ghost hunters here on the West Coast, I think. We've got a few yes. spots, you know, is that right, Cheryl? It's a, yes. and you've got the Queen Mary in Long Beach. That's sort of a place to go. And Alcatraz is a place to go. And up in Seattle, you've got to go to the underground. In Portland, you've got to go to Shanghai Tunnels. Those are really the places to go here on the West Coast, I think. I wanted to ask you, I read something. Uh, was I interrupting you, Cheryl? Were you going to say something? You, I, I wanted to ask him about the remote viewing. Um, I'm curious about um, your investigative techniques with the remote viewing because I, um, and I know 
you know, David is more, he likes to go and, you know, let's let's go and talk with the ghosts. Let's go and, you know, meet with the people. But I would rather, I like the, the idea of remote viewing it so I can kind of have, you know, I could see it before I see it. Mm-hmm. I do too. And it's, it's a skill that I'd like to develop more. Uh, I do work on it from time to time, but it's, you know, like some of these things, you really need to, almost become a full-time practitioner to get really good at it. But uh, whenever I'm asked to go look into a haunted location, I try to view it remotely first. And I'll make some some rough drawings of the floor plan or some key architectural feature that I may have noticed during my remote viewing experience. And it's remarkable to me that in the vast majority of cases, these sketches are, are drawings that I create before I go to the haunted site match up with what I see when I get there. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, I do this because I like to get in touch with a place uh, psychically as much as I can. And I, I like to do that before I have the, the bias introduced of going there physically first. Right, I like to right. go there remotely, and that way I eliminate some of the physicality that's involved in visiting a place, um, and, and just zoom on in. And it's it's really fascinating to pick up on things. And very often, the architectural feature that I'll see in my remote viewing or a specific location within the site ties in with what the client may tell me once I get there that this is where we feel something, or this is where we've seen the uh, apparition, that sort of thing. So I find that really, really amazing. But I think there's a lot to remote viewing, and that has probably something to do with just tapping into uh, what you might call a collective unconscious or just tapping into um, the the physicality of our universe. That 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 is it, I believe. Just kind of like the cosmic internet somehow. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Cosmic internet. I love that because you're Googling a location and using the cosmic oh, yeah. internet. Okay. And, and you, can, you can Google Maps in your mind and uh, Google Images as well. That's excellent. I'm going to use that if I can, David. Go, go for it. Now let me explain to you internet. how I feel that it works. Okay. On some shows, people have asked me, uh, or I've told them that you have your you have some ghosts in your house or whatever, and I I was able to tell them male female, what they look like, where in the house the activity was, what happened, so forth and so on, just by sitting here like I am with you. In fact, I did it a couple of weeks ago to Donna Stewart. I'm going to be on her show tonight about her uh, little shop that. She opened her office, I mean. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so all I do is uh, focus on that particular area. Now, you see, everything has a unique imprint, kind of like a snowflake is different or a fingerprint. So energetically, when I'm thinking about that, my energy goes to that specific and unique energy that I'm thinking of, and that's how I'm able to focus in on it. In that case, her office. And then my energy was there, and it was kind of like looking around, and then I started picking up things. But I guess you could call that a form of re- remote viewing, if I may. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
That makes I sense. Think it is. And I want to ask you, I read something about a decade ago. I know I never got there yet. I'm going to now. Uh, an article in the Sunday paper, because I was interested in some of the structures as I drove through St. Helena and Napa and those places, that they mentioned that there was a place where I think they renovated it and opened it up as shops or something. I'm not sure now. But they could see an apparition of a man hanging in one of those buildings or something. Have you heard yeah. that? Oh, yeah. I'm really familiar with that location. I've been there a million times. It's a bakery called Sweetie Pies, and it's in a building constructed uh, about 1900 by a man named Hatt, H-A-T-T. And it was a big um, granary and warehouse. And he he raised his family there. And unfortunately, um, as he became older and um, unable to care for the business, he passed it off to his son. And his son um, had a number of tragedies in his life. And as a consequence, about the year 1912, he hung himself from the rafters in this space that is now occupied by this bakery. So people go in there for a cup of coffee and a scone in the morning and end up getting a glimpse of this body swinging from the rafters at the end of a rope. It's pretty disconcerting for that to happen at any time of day, especially before your first cup of coffee. (laughs) So that's pretty well known. And and part of that building is uh, the Napa River Inn, which is a, a... B&B, and you can spend the night there and run into the wife of Mr. Hatt, who died in that building, and a number of other people who lived and worked in the building. That's amazing. Can I ask you something about the Hertz Castle? I never hear anything about that. Maybe it's not haunted. I've never been there. My (laughs) wife said she wants to take me there. She was there. Do you think it's haunted? Do you know anything about that? definitely haunted. Now, part of the problem is it's owned by the state of California, park service and you cannot go in a lot of groups have have requested uh, time to do investigations and every single one has been told no you cannot do that I've been there several times and what I do when you can only go into a place by tour you you go in with a group of 20 people and there's somebody talking about the history when you do that I'm the guy who's always lagging behind at the end of the group and I'm the guy who who lags in far enough behind that I made the wrong turn and got lost. And uh, just happened to have an audio recorder in my hand and a camera around my neck, but I'm just lost. And so I apologize if somebody spots me and I rejoin my group. And a little while later, I'm lagging behind again, and whoops, I made another wrong turn, and now I'm separated from the group and trying to do a little EVP work before somebody discovers me. So I do that sort of thing. And I've done it at Hertz Castle because that's the only way you can do any type of paranormal investigation there. But the place is definitely haunted. There's a lot of imprint energy there, a lot of it. And a lot of it is happy, too, because it was a happy venue. People in the Hollywood industry were invited there, and it was a big deal. You know, that was the, uh, the the number one invitation of the day to get invited to the Hearst San Simeon Castle because you traveled up there by private train and uh, driven up the hill and you were wined and dined sometimes for a couple of weeks of partying before you went back to work. So it was a real happy time. But there are some, there's at least one ghost there 
um, of a lady who um, was secretary to somebody who worked in the Hearst organization, and her ghost is there because she died on the property. Wow. That's amazing. Good luck. Good luck getting in there. I hear that. So that your method is the most logical approach, I believe. Now, Jeff, we just have about three minutes left. Um, is there anything that's coming up or anything you'd like to announce or, or tell your listeners? Well, I have um, a book coming out August 1st, which is the second edition of my Ghost Hunter's Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area. So you might want to look for that. Um, my first book on San Francisco Bay Area came out in 2005, and that's almost six, well, six years ago. And um, as you might expect, I've, I've heard a lot and learned a lot about the area since then, so I, I wrote a second book, which is about twice as long as the first one, and that comes out August 1st, so take a look at that. Um, at the end of the year or soon after the start of the coming year, 2012, look for my, my book which is uh, The Art and Science of Paranormal Investigation. This is a how-to book with an academic um, theme to it. I'm trying to analyze and, uh, and synthesize and assimilate things to, to sort of bring the paranormal community all together. And then if you'd like to look for me on a TV show, I've got, um, I've got a show on Comcast On Demand right now. If you have that, it's on Queen Mary. Um, and I'll be... Okay, I'll be with Noreen, Paranormal Zone TV on the Hornet in August. Okay, I'll, I'll look for that. And uh, I want to see that Queen Mary show. Yeah, it's on Paranormal Zone TV. It's Paranormal TV on Comcast On Demand. Okay, and, uh, honey, you uh, heard that. Find it for me, please. <laughs> She's <laughs> my TV person. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. There's so much more to say, and I wanted to mention a little bit about the Queen Anne Hotel that I went with Chip Coffrey uh, recently, and there's so much more to talk about that we're just going to have to have you back on the show again sometime. Well, we'll do it again, maybe after my San Francisco book comes out in August. No problem. Take your time. Great. We can talk yeah. about that when you do when you do come back on. We can promote your book for you. And also, I hope to bump into you with uh, Noreen, too, occasionally. Great. Well, thank you very much, David and Sherelle. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you very so much, much, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. com is his website. And thank you, everybody, once again, for a great show from Beyond the Gate Radio. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Have a wonderful, wonderful night. Good night, everyone. Good night.